Support for NPR and the following message come from Ally. While you're working hard, is your money being lazy? Make your money work harder than ever with Ally's new smart savings tools. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com. Ally Bank member FDIC. Hi, this is Linda Holmes. We hope that you will support your local public radio station at donate.npr.org happy. And a little later in the show, we're going to tell you more about why. You are tearing me apart, Lisa! For the uninitiated, that's a scene from The Room, a 2003 film that's legendary for being both terrible and hugely popular at midnight showings. It's also made a so-bad-it's-good icon out of its mysterious director, writer, and star, Tommy Wiseau. Maybe it's inevitable that when the story of Wiseau's creation made it to the screen, James Franco would not only star as Wiseau, but also direct the film. The Disaster Artist is based on a book co-written by Greg Sestero, Wiseau's friend and co-star. James Franco's brother Dave, Seth Rogen, Ari Grainer, and many, many others star in a story about one man's dream and the midnight madness he inspired. We're talking about it today on Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. With me in Historic Studio 44 is Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hi, Glenn. Oh, hi, Linda. (laughs) Had to be done. And in our fourth chair from NPR Music, Marissa LaRusso. Hi, Marissa. Hi. We're always so happy to have Marissa with us. Happy to be here. Always a treat. So I want to go to Glenn first. Glenn, had you seen The Room before you started preparing for this segment? Nope. I was aware of it, but I also was aware that it probably wasn't for me. Um, Not Uh because I have anything against, you know, uh, dumping on people's artistic ambitions. Uh, (laughs) Sign me up. Uh, And if it had been easier, you know, if they had made an MST3K, of yeah. the room, I mm-hmm. would have indulged that in, in a heartbeat. But um, you know what I'm not about is uh, coming out of a theater at 1.40 in the morning right. on a Saturday in downtown D.C. That yeah. is not a thing for me. I am too damn old. Yeah, so, it's not, it hasn't been streaming. So. No, no, absolutely. It's, it's tough to get it unless you see it in that particular venue. So uh, I did watch The Room under less than ideal circumstances. I was A, alone, and B, sober. And I gather that Mm -hmm. uh, neither one of those two things is. So when you do watch it like that, you're just waiting for the memes. Like, you're just waiting for the stuff you've you've seen online already. And uh, Marissa, would you you agree that the stuff that strings between those memes is kind of boring? It's kind of a boring movie. I would say boring and also a little bit nonsensical. Like a lot nonsensical. Things start and then you just never hear about them again. Characters appear and then disappear and you never hear about them again. Yeah. And then you get a meme. Yeah. I'm sorry. And Marissa, you are a person who's into The Room, right? I love The Room. Although right. I've never been to a midnight screening. Okay. Huh. Go ahead, Glenn. But no, it's just that uh, I got the audiobook, and that cracked it wide open for me. Because the, the audiobook, audiobook of, of Sestero's book. Of Sestero, written with Tom Bissell, the uh, journalist Tom Bissell, which is kind of evident, I think. I mean, I don't want to say anything about Greg Sestero. I don't know the guy. But like uh, when he describes someone's, you know, uh, practiced insouciance, you're like, really? <laughs> Greg Sestero, actor slash model. You're going to give me insouciance, are you? You never know. You never, never know. know. You never know. Uh, but that is so much fun, uh, especially the audiobook because uh, Sestero reads. He does uh, Wiseau's voice perfectly. You know, he drops all the articles like like Wiseau does. It's, it's just really a lot of fun. And that's when I keyed into what's going on here because that, and we can talk about the difference between the book and, the, and this movie, but uh, that just kind of really lets you into this whole phenomenon in a very basic, instinctual way. So, Marissa, how did your relationship with The Room begin? I think I had a friend tell me about the movie in college, and I'm... You know, not a huge fan of So Bad It's Good. That's not usually something that I expected to fall in love with. But as soon as I was convinced to watch the movie, I was totally 
in love with it because it's just so strange and absurd, but it's absurd in a way that makes sense. Like there's kind of an existential what is going on here absurdity, mm-hmm. but you can follow you know, what the characters are saying and what they're doing because it's so jam-packed full of cliches. You don't actually need that much context to understand who these people are and why Tommy feels so, or or Johnny. (laughs) Sorry, very different people. His character. His character in the room feels so betrayed by his best friend, who he names as his best friend, I don't know, 15, 20 times Mm -hmm. throughout the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been... You know, a special joy of my life to watch friends watch the room for the first time over the past couple of years because you can just see gears turning in people's heads as they're trying to understand what is going on. How did you like The Disaster Artist? I loved it. I loved getting to spend more time with these kind of bizarre but charming people who make up the cast and crew of The Room and kind of getting that behind the scenes story of how something so unexpected came to life. Mm-hmm. All right, Stephen, had you ever seen The Room before you were getting ready for this? I did not. And I kind of made more or less a double feature of it. And I'm really, really glad I did. I was glad that I had The Room not only in my memory banks, but fresh in my memory banks, because The Disaster Artist is made with a tremendous amount of love for its source material and really goes through. And it it knows what scenes you're going to be most excited about having it show. Mm -hmm. But in a larger sense, and what I really appreciated about The Disaster Artist is it understands what makes a piece of So Bad It's Good art special. And that is the love put into this piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. the vision and caring and intensity. It's very much in the same kind of subgenre as a movie like Ed Wood or a movie like Florence Foster Jenkins, sure. both of which are about incredibly untalented people who have an incredible amount of self-belief. And the movie unpacks that a little bit, but also retains a bunch of the mystery around Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, I had not seen The Room, and I still have not seen it all the way through. Um, And that has a lot to do, well, that has a lot to do with its very limited availability. I saw The Disaster Artist in Toronto, and what I had seen were a lot of YouTube clips. Uh So I had seen enough clips from The Room that most of what's in The Disaster Artist that's a recreated scene from the room I had seen. Not mm-hmm. all, but the, the major ones. Did you see all five of the weird, long sex scenes? <laughs> no, no, I did not. That was one of the few things that I was like, oh, I didn't know this was a, a thing in the room. But it it's not like it's hard to follow. No. Like, you understand what is weird about the sex scenes because it's some of the same stuff that's weird about a lot of sex scenes that mm. are bad. So I didn't feel like I really needed to have seen the entire film. However, I saw it at a midnight showing in Toronto and nobody had seen it yet. It was, you know, very new. Franco was there. Supposedly, Wiseau was there somewhere. He wasn't on stage, but they said he was in the house. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) And so, of course, this midnight showing in Toronto was full of people who love and care about the room. And they appeared to have seen it hundreds of times. Um, (laughs) I was there with a critic friend who loves the room and knows the whole phenomenon very well. And I do feel like being in that environment made it matter not at all that I personally had not seen the entire movie. Because Mm. everything that I – like if you ever needed to know whether you were supposed to react to something, just being in a room full of people who were reacting to it would have been adequate. And I had a great time even though – 
like Marissa, I, I'm not always into So Bad It's Good on its own. Mm-hmm. Like like we were saying, if they had done a Mystery Science Theater or some kind of riff, I would have been more likely to have seen it. Mm-hmm. But I do generally find that if you sit down to watch something that is legendarily bad, what you will find is that it's really funny for 10 minutes. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then it's so boring. Yeah. And I suspect that that's what my experience of watching all of The Room mm-hmm. would have been like. And I want to go back to what Steven said about it being loving. Mm -hmm. Because when Franco presented The Disaster Artist at the screening, it was very much like, you know, I respect Tommy so much and I think he's so amazing and this isn't about making fun of Tommy. And I, I watched it and I was like... It's about making fun of Tommy. I mean, how can you really... I don't know if I buy the idea that it's really made with this sense that he's he's secretly an artist in an important way. I do think there is a way to critique the room that this movie does not really try to do. I think The Room is, among other things, a fairly deeply misogynist movie. The disaster artist kind of doesn't really go there. There are certainly questions that people have had about the financing of The Room. Like, where did Tommy Wiseau get his money? The movie's kind of like, ah, we don't know. There, there are certainly ways that you could probe this story that would make it a little bit darker. They kind of allude to, they show a little bit of him kind of mistreating the cast. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this is a very slight and very silly, and in that way, I think it is a loving portrait, even, even as it pokes and mocks. Right. Especially when you hire uh, this many cameos from this many sort of oh, indie boy. stars. Uh, <laughs> you get, you, you you inject into the film a certain kind of perceived smugness. Uh-huh. And that's 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 fine. I, I do think this is a, a, a loving caricature. But it also, it conflates a lot. It takes the timeline of making the, the room and just crunches it together, which it has to do. It's an it's a hour and a half or whatever it is. But it also, like, some of the weirdness that's in the audiobook and the book is not here because there's just no room for it because yeah. it's already weird enough. There were not just two crews on the, on the room. There were three. Because <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, all that kind of stuff. The other thing that I thought was intriguing, the Dave Franco character, Greg, is a portrayed in the film as sort of like a, yeah, let's go, let's go be a, a complete sidekick uh, enthusiast. And in the book, the whole book is about how conflicted he is about what's going on here, how this money's getting spent, how he's treating the people. He has a lot more self-awareness Yeah, than it really does not come screen. through in the film no, that he feels no, no. that way way at all because i think they want to make they want to shine the spotlight on on james franco and have like depict this friendship as two ambitious artists finding each other as opposed to what it kind of was which was like somebody going what the hell's going on with this guy well and i think part of the loving caricature part is that one of the things they want to tell you was good about about Wiseau and the movie is that you know he had this inspiring effect on his friend mm-hmm. and you know, that his friend was able to see, like, well, at least he's, you know, he follows his dreams and that means something. I don't know. What do you think, Marissa? Yeah, I was going to say, Glenn, that I feel like part of what Tommy Wiseau himself probably saw in the making of The Room was that he and Greg were buddies and that there wasn't that much, you know, conflict. And so I'm sure if Tommy Wiseau has seen The Disaster Artist, and I'm sure he's seen it several times, that that it maybe does correlate to his understanding mm-hmm. of reality. And in that way, it feels like James Franco is kind of honoring oh, Tommy's experience in that way. And I think t- it reminds me, too, of uh, something that was said on this very podcast in relation to the movie Lady Bird, this idea that love is attention. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that James Franco paid a lot of attention 
to Tommy Wiseau, he has the way that he speaks down perfectly. Yeah. He kind of has this weird thing where he half closes one eye that makes <laughs> him look extremely like Tommy Wiseau in the, in the face. Uh-huh. He definitely paid attention. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about because I think, you know, Franco has gotten a lot of attention for this role. He's been in the running for, for some of the Critics Awards for this role. I am fascinated by the question of whether this is acting in the traditional sense or whether this is an impression, which Mm -hmm. is not the same thing. And we actually have a little bit of tape uh, where you will hear Tommy Wiseau deliver what we might call an iconic line from the room. And then you will hear James Franco doing it as Tommy Wiseau. Uh, Jessica, give me the clip. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. (laughs) Yeah, so my other favorite thing about this movie coming out is that you do have, you know, it's perfect for Twitter. It's perfect for kind of communal taking in of a film. I came in this morning and I saw a tweet uh, from a guy named uh, Jonathan Monitz that says uh, the reviews for the disaster artist are in. Overall, it's received. Hi, Mark. There you go. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) I mean, it's that kind of thing that gives you the sense that everybody is enjoying something communally. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Something that neither the book nor the film is particularly interested in is how that happened, how this cult arose. Yeah. and both cut off way before that. And in some ways, I'm more interested in that. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because there are so many bad movies. (laughs) How does one, you know, they explain how Wiseau bought the billboard, you know, bought a, a kind of a famous billboard to advertise the movie. And of course, they made a very similar billboard to advertise the disaster artist in keeping with the way they've been doing this. But I don't really know the answer to what turns the corner where all of a sudden you're the bad movie that everybody cares about. Yeah, I do wonder why the movie doesn't bother with that. But I also, I felt like watching this, especially before I watched it, I said, boy, doesn't this feel like kind of an L.A. story? Doesn't this feel like a movie that you really, really make if you live in L.A. and you're and you're immersed in this world? And how many people have seen The Room? And I wonder if maybe there's this sense that the way that cult following built up was so... LA specific that yeah. they wanted to make it more universal. That's just a that's just a guess. Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. In terms of all the cameos and there are a lot of them. I think this film has found for me the ideal percentage of Seth Rogen. Yeah. <laughs> This is optimal Seth Rogen content right here. I get that. Yeah, and he's, it's a, he's really good in it. He's good in it. He's funny in it. You know, and one of the things that I found when I was watching it and that comes out as we sort of talk about how the movie sees Wiseau in particular is that you can see this the way I think Franco sees it as like he's a kind of an oddball visionary or you can see it as what kind of people have the capacity to be this self-indulgent? Mm-hmm. Like, what mm-hmm. kinds of resources yeah. do you have to have to be this self-indulgent? Because you can also look at it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden he can make an entire movie even though, you know. He, he makes a, mo- a movie that looks like it cost a buck seventy-five <laughs> and spent $6 million on it. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and I do want to give a shout to, uh, boy, over the credits of the disaster artist, they share with you a number of oh, reenacted yeah. moments 
from the room. They are like catnip. Yeah. Right. yeah. Of the room. Could, they really I, are. I could watch them over and over again. Well, I, I got it into my head. It turned out not to be true based on what I read. But at one point I was thinking, I bet James Franco reshot the entire thing. You I know? thought that too. I yeah. was hoping. Doubled I was the hoping entire thing. But oh my it, God, is a DVD extra? Oh man. <laughs> well, when Bob Montello and I uh, were talking about this film, I said, I bet he did that. And mm-hmm. Bob said, that just think how absurd that would be. And I said, it's James Franco. <laughs> it's exactly the kind of thing James Franco would do. But it sounds like it didn't actually happen. And more's the pity. If James Franco had spent more time in character as Tommy Wiseau, he would have maybe convinced himself that it would, <laughs> be, would be worth the money to do a shot for shot. Yeah. Just method acting. It's method really acting. In the end, did you enjoy it, Marissa? I absolutely enjoyed it. Yeah. It made me think in a more complicated way about the person of Tommy Wiseau, which I didn't necessarily expect going in. I expected just to laugh and learn a little bit. But it's an interesting question, you know, how what does it take to be that self-indulgent? And where is the line between extreme self-indulgence and really believing in your dreams? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well put. Boy, well put indeed. Thank you very much, Marissa LaRusso. Now, I will be very... Very curious to hear what all of you think about The Disaster Artist. You can come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time to talk about what's making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code HAPPYHOUR. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week? When we did our summer movie preview, I mentioned a movie called A Ghost Story, which was uh, written and directed by David Lowry. Mm-hmm. I was very excited about the movie. I was really intrigued by the plot, uh, but I uh, ended up being very hesitant to actually watch it because it stars Casey Affleck. And as it has been widely reported, there were two sexual harassment lawsuits filed against Casey Affleck in 2010, both were settled out of court, but I still wanted to see this movie. I was still intrigued by the plot, and I finally sat down and watched it. First of all, Casey Affleck, spoiler, dies about 15 minutes in and spends the entire rest of the movie with a white sheet over him because he is a ghost, and it's even got little eye holes and everything. It is a very meditative movie, some might say slow. As much as I uh, was not necessarily in the mood to see Casey Affleck, I was very in the mood to see Rooney Mara. I might have said before seeing this movie, I would watch a movie in which Rooney Mara sits on the floor and eats a pie for five minutes. And watching this film, I would get my wish. (laughs) Um, But it's also got several real emotional gut punches in it and some really kind of thoughtful ruminations on the nature of the universe and loss and memory. It kind of sucker punches you with being heartwarming without ever being sentimental. Uh, And I also want to throw a shout out to the music by Daniel Hart. Robin Hilton did an interview with Daniel Hart because he saw a ghost story and was so moved by the music. Uh, So I encourage people to track that down. Anyway, the speed with which this movie moves might not be for everyone, but if you are in the mood for a, a, a 
a very deliberately paced and thoughtful film about death, a ghost story. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? The NPR Book Concierge is live. I've written for it for many years, but this first year I actually worked on it. Went behind the scenes, saw the sausage getting made. We ask all of our freelance reviewers and people all across NPR to recommend books published in 2017. This year, there's more than ever before. There's something like, uh, well, it's over 370, put it that way. Uh, but the great thing about it is its interactivity. You can It's just a giant list of books, but then you click on a tab and it narrows it down. Now, we have genre tabs, very functional genre tabs like uh, science fiction, history, biography. But we also have more subjective tags like It's All Geek to Me and The Dark Side and Seriously Great Writing, each of which uh, engendered some uh, spirited discussion. Spirited uh, discussion, <laughs> I love it. it. It's a great thing. It's a lot of work just in terms of the logistics. So uh, I worked on it, Petra Mayer, Rose Friedman, and especially our fearless leader, Nicole Cohen. And the NPR visuals team designed and built the thing, and Jeff Heng was our point person over there. So go and click and get some great ideas for you and for folks on your list at npr.org slash bestbooks. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Marissa LaRusso, what is making you happy this week? So I'm a big fan of email newsletters. I feel like they're a great way to look like you're reading something really important when really you're just kind of goofing off at work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's one that I love in particular. It's called The Dry Down, um, written by an essayist named Helena Fitzgerald and a journalist named Rachel Syme. It's a newsletter about perfume and every... Newsletter comes with, you know, like a handful of recommendations for different perfumes, but the recommendations are inside these beautiful kind of mini essays that are about so much more than smell. They're about family and relationships and memory and history and all sorts of stuff. And before I started reading their newsletter, I always kind of thought the perfume was just for very fancy old rich ladies and not for me. But um, this newsletter has totally opened the door for me to be interested in fragrance, as they say. <laughs> and I highly recommend it. It's online at tinyletter.com slash the drydown. Thank you very much. My, uh, my sinuses are skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing that I like to say about anything that's making any of us happy this week, it's that it's about more than smell. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Thank you very much. Here's what is making me happy this week. Sometimes you just need a good Twitter feed that you can follow. This is not an obscure one. This is one much beloved by many people. But I want to give a shout this week to Chrissy Teigen's mm. uh, Twitter feed. She is a model. She is a host on a couple of TV projects. She is married to John Legend, which I mention only because uh, they have many adorable pictures of themselves <laughs> together and their their. Uh, child and recently she announced her pregnancy with another child and her Twitter feed uh, is this sort of wonderful mishmash of her yelling at people which I love and her kind of sticking up for her husband and life and do it just being a normal person and then every now and then there's just something that I find completely delightful the other day she tweeted that if anyone found a big mom bra under the seat on an airplane, <laughs> that it was hers. <laughs> and it was such a, to me, it was, and I said this on Twitter at the time, it's up there with the kind of baby shoes never worn. Kind of, <laughs> it's not just the thing itself, but it's the story that you imagine behind it. Somewhere, a bunch of people were on a flight with Chrissy Teigen when she took off her big mom bra and put it under the seat. And I love that. Um, I find her a delightful personality. It's one of those Twitter accounts where you're like, does she write? all of it herself. I don't care. For all I know, she does. I think she seems perfectly lovely enough. But whether or not she does, I find it a fun Twitter account to follow. And it's just at Chrissy Teigen. That's T-E-I-G-E-N. Chrissy Teigen on Twitter. And that is what is making me happy this week. 
Before we go, uh, as I mentioned at the very top of the show, we want you to support your local public radio station at donate.npr.org slash happy. And when you do that, what happens is you support your local station, but we get a point in a grand battle that we're having with all the other podcasts because that's a way for you to support your local station, but also do it in the name of podcast listening. Because for a lot of people, the connection between podcasts and stations can be a little tenuous. It's incredibly important, though, for you to support your local station because it's all the same system. And you supporting your station allows us to keep doing what we're doing. Plus all of the shows that we have taken on as our mortal enemies in this debate, like Sam Sanders show (laughs) and uh, the politics podcast and all the other ones that we we know that you love, (laughs) but that we're also trying to defeat by proving that we have the most generous listeners. So again, go to donate.npr.org slash happy. NPR is so smart about this. Like, they understand, you know, pledge drives, they're not necessarily for everyone, but but if you make it a rivalry... Mm. Yeah, you... no, they didn't... I don't think they knew that. <laughs> I think the fact that we've all made this into a petty competition is beyond their wildest imaginations. <laughs> they had no idea how petty we were. <laughs> and now... They all know. (laughs) Now they know. Uh, And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find me at NPRMonkeyC. You can find Stephen at IDislikeStephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can find Marissa at M-R-S-S-L-R-S-S. Is that right? That is right. It's her name, but with no vowels. You know? (laughs) I'm a millennial. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You can find our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer, Emeritus, and music director, Mike Katzif, at Mike Katzif, K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides the in and out music that you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have a second and you're so inclined, throw us a good review on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find the show. We will see you all right back here next week.